Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, it's Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. It's Friday, September 2nd. Back with us now, Ibram X. Kendi, professor in the humanities and the founding director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. He's maybe best known for his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and he's the author of a new book now called How to Raise an Anti-Racist. Professor Kendi, it's always great to have you on. Welcome back to WNYC. Oh, thank you for having me on. And we've had you on the show a few times before to speak about other books. It's probably worth asking you, though, to remind us what you mean when you say anti-racist. For some reason, that's become a hot-button term uh, in politics with some people, you know, shooting arrows at it. Is it different from simply being non-racist? Well, to to be anti-racist is to recognize the racial groups as equals, despite differences in in colors and cultures. And then to be anti-racist, since you recognize the racial groups as equals, it's to recognize that the source of racial disparities in our society is not what's superior or inferior about a particular racial group. It's the result of, of racist policies. And, and then to be anti-racist is to figure out a way in your own life to challenge those policies, to challenge even the ideas that suggest the, the cause of these disparities in our society, the result of bad people, as, a, as opposed to bad policy. And unfortunately, the reason why this has become a, a hot button sort of topic, particularly within sort of far right circles, is because for really a decade, one of the primary white supremacist talking points has been this idea that anti-racist is code for anti-white. And I'm quoting a white supremacist by the name of Bob Whitaker. And that idea has has basically gone mainstream. So to be anti-racist, it almost sounds like, is to be politically active to change policy, not ju- just to treat people equally as individuals? Well, yeah, because if we think about it, if you if racial inequality is the norm, in other words, we, we look at our society and let's say we see black people who are disproportionately impoverished, disproportionately incarcerated, disproportionately dying of COVID when you control for age. If we do nothing, that's only going to persist. We have to actively uh, transform the conditions and the policies that led to those disparities. So How to Raise an Anti-Racist, the title of the new book. Your wife is a physician, I know, and you open the book with her experiences with the medical system while she was pregnant, including that she was brushed off after reporting a symptom that worried her to two separate nurses, a kind of experience that so many black people can relate to. We've had calls on this show about things like that. Why did you choose to begin the book there? Well, I think her story was was the story of her as a black pregnant woman being neglected when she expressed that she was that something was off. And 
unfortunately, that's one of the reasons why Black women are three times more likely to die of pregnancy-related causes than white women, white women. And that sort of routine, regular neglect, this crisis that people are sort of ignoring both the crisis itself and then the ignoring and neglecting of Black uh, pregnant women, to me, it serves as a metaphor for the book. And, and that is that the people who are the most vulnerable to racist messages, like the idea that there's something inferior or superior or wrong or right about a particular racial group, or the idea that people have more because they are more, the group that is most vulnerable to these racist messages are young people. But you know who were the least likely to engage about it? You know who we're ne- is young people. So we're neglecting mm. them and leaving them vulnerable to this harm. And you write, surprisingly to me, the thought of nurturing my child to be anti-racist did not sit well with me. It was uncomfortable even to think about. Why? I, I mean, as a parent, uh, you know, I know that one of the things we want to do is is protect our children. We, we, we don't want to engage them on, a, on what will be an uncomfortable and, and, and difficult conversation. Uh, if anything, we'd hope to not, to, to free them of discomfort, to ensure that they're uh, joyous and joyful. But the more I studied this and the more I experienced, you know, sort of fatherhood, I realized that not talking to her about the messages that she could end up hearing, that could end up harming her, is equivalent to like not taking her to the doctor to get a procedure because that procedure will be uncomfortable. You know, there's a difference between uh, uh, destructive discomfort and and what we're talking about, which is constructive discomfort that will protect her uh, and allow her to be healthy and whole and engaging with our children about racism will allow that. And you write, raising our children to be anti-racist is like dressing their minds in armor before we send them out into the world. What messages in practice make up that armor? And I guess that relates to your last answer, right? If if people think, well, teaching somebody to be anti-racist, that's not a burden. Uh, it's a burden if you think your child is likely to encounter racism frequently along the way of their lives. Can you, I mean, I think it's so important for us to first realize that we as, as as parents and teachers and educators and grandparents and everyone who's caring for children, when our children are young, we teach them to look both ways before they cross the street. We, we allow them to understand that if they don't, those cars could hit them and harm them. I think it's important for us to know and that if you are raising a white child, that white child is going to be told directly and indirectly that there's something right about them because of the color of their skin. And so to teach that child, you're, you're special when you're nice. You're special when you share. You're, you're special when you, know, you are empathetic, but you're not special because of the color of your skin. Even though white people predominate in your curriculum, in your media, uh, even though people are saying that white people have more because they are more, there's nothing superior about, about white people. To teach that child that is protective. 
just as to teach a, a, a black child or a native child or a Latinx child or an Asian child, there's nothing wrong with you because of the color of your skin or because of your country of origin or because the way your eyes are shaped. They're going to hear different messages and we need to protect them by telling him them that those dangerous messages are wrong. And you write uh, with you know reference to what you just said, two pieces of that armor there's nothing right about me because of the color of my skin. There's nothing, nothing wrong with me because of the color of my skin. And, and I think I hear you saying that for white kids, they don't have to have parents who are saying explicitly, you're better because you're white. There aren't that many parents, I think, anymore who say that. Um, but it's all these messages that come to the kid through all kinds of channels, who's portrayed in the, the reading texts and, you know, through media and all kinds of things that just give them this sense of comfort that they're normal, that they belong in their society that non-white children don't have. Is that where you're going? Exactly. Because let's say if you are, you know, a, a parent of a, of a white child and you, you don't necessarily talk about race, so you don't explicitly say white people are superior, but you've chosen to live in a, in a predominantly almost all white neighborhood. You send them to a school in which all, almost all the kids are white. Almost all the characters in the book that you read to them are white. Almost all the friends that you bring to your home are white. Uh, almost when you're walking down the street and you encounter a, a black person, uh, who's coming across, your child sees that you're scared. Uh, you know, all these things, these things are what's called nonverbal messages. So they send messages to the child about who you value. And so that's why in the book, I talk a lot about the environment we're raising our children in, um, because it says to our children who we value. So if we raise them in a diverse environment, we're, we're saying to the, to the children, we value all these different people being in your life. Do you think raising a white anti-racist involves different messages or skills than raising a black or other person of color anti-racist? White kids maybe, you know, as we discussed, don't need that armor in this country, for example. So do you get into the book, uh, get into in the book, like different kinds of skills, different kinds of messages, different kinds of commitments? I think it's certainly their differences in, in the sense that if you're a parent of a, of a white child, you just have to assume that the messages that they're going to see and hear in their society is that they are special because they're white. And so you then have to counteract those messages by talking about the equality of skin colors, the equality of the racial groups, that people don't have more because they are more, by exposing them to the cultures of other people, by expressing respect uh, for those other cultures, you know, and colors. But then there are similarities, you know, no matter the, the racial identity of your child, to raise a child to be empathetic for people who don't look like them, who don't live near them, who don't love like them, and who don't worship like them is going to raise someone who's going to be less likely to, to, to grow into an adult that uh, hates someone because of the color of their skin. If you raise a critical thinker, someone who 
is about investigating and discovering and, and, and standing on facts and who has the capacity to self-reflect and self-critique and change their mind. Uh, then you're also, that's the critical thought, according to scholars, is the opposite of prejudicial thinking, which is based on, on belief, which is based on confirming what we already believe, which is based on making mass generalizations based on individual examples as opposed to, uh, you know, facts. Um, this relates, I think, to some of what's going on politically around education right now, some of the backlash against what we might call anti-racist teaching um, around the claim that the way it's done can make white kids feel guilty just for being white. Um, but the two pieces of armor from your book that, that we checked before, that we mentioned before, there's nothing right about me because of the color of my skin. There's nothing wrong with me because of the color of my skin. Can you address this thing, which was one of the reasons why the current governor of Virginia, Republican Glenn Youngkin, got elected last year and is popping up in, in many other states uh, in discussions about teaching history and, and sociology and, and um, you know, all kinds of things. Um, the, can you do this without making white kids feel guilty for existing? And if so, how? Well, I, with How to Raise an Anti-Racist, I, I thought it was critically important to ensure that this book was, was based on a backbone of research. And so scholars have been studying the racial attitudes of children of all different backgrounds, multiple ages. The book is actually organized based on developmental levels. So it starts in pregnancy, then goes to infant, then toddler, then school child, and all the way up to a teenager. But one study actually found that when students, and I think this study looked at black and white students, are taught about white racism, that it doesn't change the attitudes of either group of students towards white people, but it does change their attitudes towards race. <laughs> and so we scholars have already proven that teaching about white racism doesn't affect the racial attitudes of white children towards white people. And one of the reasons why it doesn't is because to teach, for instance, about slavery or to about Jim Crow, or even about racism today, is to teach about the, the resistance to it, the anti-racist resistance. And to teach about the anti-racist resistance is to teach about white people who fought against slavery and Jim Crow and, and racism today. And so white children who are learning about that can see themselves in those white people who fought against racism. They don't have to see themselves in the white people who sought to, to reinforce it. Biba in Bloomfield. You're on WNYC with Ibram X. Kendi. Hi, Biba. Hi. Good Good afternoon. Good morning. <laughs> um, so I guess you guys got the background. I really appreciate your taking the call. Um, and Dr. Kendi, I, was, I wanted to ask something around the question of education because um, in my family's case, I'm a white European-American and my husband is an immigrant from Tunisia. And our children grew up with Muslim names in, you know, the post-September 11th world. Mm -hmm. And we made a decision around the time of middle school. They were in public schools in New York City. And we made a decision to move to the suburbs 
for the sake of diversity, which wasn't really available in New York City um, in the public school system as much anymore. Um, and what I found was that we had to make a conscious choice in favor of um, the human education, I would say, um, as opposed to like, a, you know, a, a high, what would be considered a very high uh, academic education. Um, and I have no regrets, but I wanted to know what your thoughts were on that. Um, oftentimes, you know, you might have a private school that has some diversity, but not the diversity of different educational backgrounds. You know, I come from a um, family of professors and my husband comes from a, um, a family of, you know, of, of small business owners in Tunisia. Biba, did you say that you moved out of New York City to the suburbs because you were going to find more diversity there? Yes. So my In kids are right now. That's counter to what people might assume. Yes, but I think like by the time my son, who's now uh, 20, he's going to be 27 this year, by the time he was in third grade um, in a public school on the Upper West Side, uh, parents were worried about middle school and were sending their kids to tutors so that they would test into the better middle schools. Ah, uh, right. So it's the school segregation within the system, yeah, even though there's more diversity in the overall city population. Um, yeah, L in Brooklyn. You're on WNYC with Ibram X. Kendi with his new book, How to Raise an Anti-Racist. Hiya, L. Hi, I'm so happy to be on, and especially in such an important topic. Um, so I have a daughter, Maya, and when she was uh, just getting into COVID and sick at uh, first grade, uh, we were talking about race and and that we're not better or nobody's better or or not how you said it. It was so perfect. Now I can't remember because I'm so excited that I'm talking with you. Um, but um, not better or worse because of the color of our skin. And Maya was starting to uh, feel guilty that she's white. And we were really lucky that um, we got a, a, a recommendation from school for a book called Not My Idea. And uh, even though it was a little hard for her to read because she was still young, we read it and it really helped her because she could understand that she, she is white and she will be seen white, but she can choose how to behave. And, and, yeah. and it's not her idea racism. She can choose not to adhere to it, and she can be empathetic to other people from different cultures, from different backgrounds, from different color of skin. And saying it as it is, I think, is, is the most easy way, and there's no easy way talking about it. I'm so connected with you, Doctor, when you said it didn't sit with you well to actually talk about this because we really do want to protect our kids from dealing with this, but we have to deal with it as early as we can so that so that it's less of a, a problem later in so many ways. And thank you so much for writing another book that can be helpful for parents like me that really want to make a change in the world through the new generation. Yael, thank you so much. And Dr. Kendi, a last thought to Yael and to everybody? Well, thank you, Yael, for, for that. And indeed, thank you for your courage to talk to your child and not only to talk to your child, to, to get resources to support you. And um, 
And indeed, in many ways, I wrote How to Raise an Anti-Racist because I felt I needed a resource as a parent to support me in my sort of journey to engage with, with my daughter. So no child will feel guilty uh, or bad about the color of their skin, that there's nothing wrong with them because of the color of their skin. And that even if uh, people are saying that Black people, that there's something wrong with Black people, that doesn't mean you have to believe it. Even though white people have engaged in racism, you can be different and you can be one of those who are challenging racism. And, and so I'm just excited uh, and, and just happy uh, that, she sh- that she shared that because I think it's a model for, for what we as parents and teachers uh, can do and should do. Ibram X. Kendi, professor in the humanities and founding director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research, his new book, How to Raise an Anti-Racist. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. We always appreciate when you come on. You're welcome. Thank you, as always. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.